Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. If you have a small yard or crummy soil or maybe all you have is a sunny patio, you can grow tomatoes in containers. If you have an area around the outside of your home that gets six hours or more of sun a day during spring and summer, you can be serving garden-fresh tomatoes at mealtime. However, there are some tomato varieties that are better suited for growing in large pots. Our favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, offers us tips on choosing the best tomatoes for containers. Planning your first vacation in a while this year? If a car trip along the scenic Northern California coast is in your plans, we have an amazing garden for you to visit. And it's part of an old Russian fort. And it's a state park, too. It's the Call Garden at Fort Ross, and we'll take you there on this edition. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics podcast. A lot of ways to get them in. Speakpipe.com slash Garden Basics. Email, sure. Fred at FarmerFred.com. You can phone. If you have a phone, you can phone it in with a question. 916-292-8964. 916-292-8964. But I got to tell you, Speakpipe is better audio quality. Speakpipe.com slash Garden Basics. And again, you can always do the email. Fred at FarmerFred.com or social media. And that's where this question comes from on the Farmer Fred Facebook page. I was talking about tomatoes, about good award-winning tomatoes to plant in your garden. Mm-hmm. And a uh, reader had the question, what are the best container tomatoes? That's a good question. Oh, Debbie Flower is here. <laughs> Our favorite retired college horticultural professor. Yeah. Debbie, uh, maybe some general guidelines for tomatoes in containers. I would think it, they need to be small. Right. That would be the number one criteria is that they're not going to get too big. Some tomatoes can get 12, 15 feet tall and spread four or five feet wide. And that's not the tomato that you want to grow in the container. Use a big container, 15 gallon container. You'll read in some places they say you can do it in smaller and you can for a while and then your tomato will peter out. So if you want a good long season out of that tomato, use a 15 gallon or a half barrel would be really good. Make sure there are drainage holes in the bottom. And then you pick a tomato and in your tomato list, Fred, you put tomato vocabulary and that's a very useful thing to have because one word you in particular want to look for is determinate. Determinate means the tomato will stop growing at a certain size. They're uh, often used in the canning industry, grown in the field. They don't always need to be caged or staked and they produce a lot of fruit all at once. But they do continue to produce. So it isn't a once and done kind of plant. So you will have a long season of growing. You'll just have a whole bunch of tomatoes right at the beginning. And then you'll have uh, continuous production after that. A little bit slower production. A little bit slower. However, it does pick up late in the season. It's like you get a big crop 
early in the season, then a few along the way, and then towards the end of the season, another big crop. Yeah, and I can speculate why that would be, but I don't know for sure. Weather? Weather, right. Yes. That's what I was thinking. Cooler yeah. weather right. and that the plant has, you know, it's a very expensive to a plant to produce flowers and fruit because the flowers and fruit do not photosynthesize. They do not make their own food. And so they have to rely on the other green parts of the plant to produce food for them. And so that first heavy crop on the determinant plant can really take it out of the plant and it needs some time to uh, recover collect more nutrients, collect enough extra sugars, uh, make enough extra food in its green parts to produce another crop. And have the right conditions, too. Yes, and then the weather cools off. The end of the summer is hot and yucky, and and the plant is just sitting around trying to keep itself cool, and then things start to cool off naturally, and it has the extra energy to make some fruit. So, determinant is one word we want to look for. Another is bush. Bush plants, tomato plants, are typically... Uh, determinants, but they're often the small end of the determinant scale. There are some yeah. determinant plants that can get very large. Yeah, most though, probably around two, three feet tall. The bushes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Using those terms, you've got the bush all-star, the bush champion, the early girl bush. There are some plants that are even named things like patio. That So that gives you a hint that the plant is really meant to be in a container. For a, a sauce plant, if you want tomatoes for sauce, really meaty tomatoes, the Roma is an old reliable determinant plant. And so if you're going to Google... Use these terms. Use determinate bush. Look for those other names that indicate that it would be kind of small, like a patio. You can get some really small tomatoes, ones that only grow about a foot by a foot. They plants, tend to, not the fruit. The plants, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so you get some really small tomato plants that only grow maybe a foot by a foot. And they're fun. They take up less space than most, and they are productive. So that may be really beneficial for you. There are some vining ones that do well hanging. Do a little bit of research, but use those terms we talked about. If you remember blogs, remember when blogs were popular? <laughs> Mine still exists out there in the blogosphere, the Farmer Fred Ramp blog page. And one of the more popular ones is uh, is called Fall and Winter Tomatoes from Your Greenhouse. I, I spent a couple of years uh, attempting to grow tomatoes in a greenhouse during the winter. And you obviously have limited space in, in hobby greenhouses. Mm -hmm. So I was growing them in five and 15 gallon containers and I was choosing determinate varieties that would ripen fairly quickly, usually within 55 to 65 days, which for a tomato is pretty darn quick. It is very quick. But there are plenty of varieties available. Among the ones that I planted that I had success with, as you mentioned, Bush Early Girl, the bush beef steak and some uh, heirloom tomatoes like Grishovka, Manitoba, others like Oregon Spring, Pilgrim. Two of the ones of the smaller tomatoes that actually uh, really did quite well, Polar Baby and Prairie Fire. One more, the 506 bush uh, also did, did quite well. Now, the problem with growing tomatoes in the greenhouse in the wintertime in a greenhouse that you'd keep above 60 degrees or so. Mm -hmm. So you got the uh, energy bill to think about there. Mm -hmm. The taste. It's a notch above supermarket level. <laughs> Do you want to put that much it's effort? It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of work to get something that's just slightly better than a supermarket tomato. But the thing is, you grew it yourself. Right. And the thing is, you're going to get white flies. Well, yes. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Notice that a lot of the names of the tomatoes you mentioned, not all of them, but 
uh, indicate coldness. Mm-hmm. Manitoba, polar, yeah. Silets, which is a place in Oregon, Siberia. There's another term. I don't know. Didn't check if it was on your list. Uh, Parthenocarpic. Parthenocarpic means producing without pollination. It's like a navel orange. Never gets pollinated. It just produces fruit. It's like a false pregnancy. So it's a perfect flower? It's just a... They do flower navel oranges, but they don't get pollinated. They just produce a fruit. It's like a false pregnancy. And there are parthenocarpic tomatoes, there are parthenocarpic cucumbers. They won't have seeds in them mm. and they don't need to be pollinated. So so you don't have to have bees in your greenhouse right. to produce the fruit. I had a fan <laughs> to <laughs> and, move it around. And you shook the tables. Yeah, and I shook yeah. the tables. Yeah. yeah. Which, which tomatoes can be self-pollinating, meaning that if temperatures and growing conditions are right, their uh, pistil and stamen will pass each other at just the right time to transfer pollen and cause uh, fruit to form. I used to use old battery-operated bedroom toys, too, for pollination <laughs> purposes. And it works. You can actually see the pollen move around when you touch it. Toothbrushes, electric toothbrushes. Yeah, those, those things. Yeah, yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. But, yes, there are a lot of good container tomatoes of a good size. You just got to shop carefully. You do. Got to read those seed packets or read the mm. description in the catalog. It's so hard to be disciplined looking at those catalogs. Yeah, I think from a container plant, the biggest tomato that you might get might be an eight ounce tomato, which is not bad. That's half a pound. Pretty good size. Because most of them are two, three, four ounces. Mm -hmm. They're small tomatoes. Mm -hmm. But hey, you grew it yourself. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go for the containerized tomatoes. Now, what warning about the list I read you, those lists with uh, very cold sounding names How are they going to do in a hot environment in the summertime? Right. I would not grow some of those. I would not even attempt to grow some of those uh, in our hot environment. I would expect that they would suffer. However, in the uh, season before the hot season, you could probably be successful seeing how they mature in 50, 55 days or so or towards the end of the season, too. Right. You could have them maybe in February. Yeah. Start and grow them indoors and be done by May. Well, you can move them out probably by April. Mm-hmm. And they could finish off their life outdoors, right? And and, and produce a lot. But yeah, and there's a lot of, uh, as you said, uh, tumbling varieties of tomatoes mm-hmm. that uh, look great cascading from their containers. Yes. So you got all that going for it. Containerized tomatoes, sure, give it a try. Just make sure it's a good sized tomato. It's a determinant. It's a determinant. Bush, maybe. Yep, and uh, it gets water. Yeah, you got to watch that. They're going to need more attention to watering in particular Mm -hmm. than something that you put in the ground. One way to get around that sometimes, too, and it can also maybe buy you a few extra days when the weather gets warm, is to take that five or 15-gallon container, stick it in a bigger pot Mm -hmm. so that there's an airspace between the outer pot and the inner pot. Mm -hmm. And that keeps the sun from directly hitting the pot that you have the tomato growing in. Right. And if you don't have that bigger pot, because 15s are quite large, the other the bigger pot would have to be even larger. A 30. Yeah. <laughs> wrap it in aluminum foil. The outside. The outside of the pot. Wrap, yes. Wrap yeah. it in aluminum foil too, so that the light uh, reflects off. Light hitting a black pot takes 30 minutes and heats the media up to 140 degrees and that kills the roots. And, of course, put a sign on the outside of your aluminum foil-wrapped pots that's saying, do not disturb UFO research in progress. <laughs> we learned a lot about containerized tomatoes. Thank you, Debbie Flower. Oh, you're welcome, Fred. 
I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this podcast. My criteria, though, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, and a product I would buy again. And you know who checks all those boxes? It's SmartPots. SmartPots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. SmartPots are sold around the world, and they're proudly made 100% right here in the USA. SmartPots come in a wide array of sizes and colors and can be reused year after year. Some models even have handles, and that makes them a lot easier to move around the yard. Because the fabric breathes, SmartPots are better suited than plastic pots, especially for hot climates. That breathable fabric has other benefits, too. Water drainage issues? Not with smart pots. Roots that go round and round choking the root ball like they do in plastic pots? Doesn't happen with smart pots. These benefits will help you get a bigger, better plant than what you've gotten in the past with the same size plastic or other hard container. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers as well as select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your SmartPot order by using the coupon code FRED. F-R-E-D. Use it at checkout from the SmartPot store. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount, SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Have you taken a look at the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Beyond the Basics newsletter yet? It's a deeper dive into what was discussed on the podcast, along with more great gardening information. It really is going beyond the basics. In the edition of the newsletter that comes out this Friday, March 18th, we chat with renowned chef and master gardener Andy McDonald. She was cooking up vegan gumbo out at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center on an open garden day for the staff. A gumbo, of course, so you can use up a lot of what you harvest from your garden and put that in a gumbo. After all, you grew it, now eat it. That gumbo, I gotta tell you, smelled so good, I wanted to share it with you in Friday's Beyond Basics newsletter. Of course, they haven't installed digital aromas yet. So, besides talking with Andy about her vegan gumbo recipe, we'll have that recipe as well in the newsletter. It's what's cooking in the latest Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, Beyond the Basics, out Friday, March 18th. Find a link in the podcast show notes or at farmerfred.com or by going to substack.com slash gardenbasics. Think of it as your garden resource that goes beyond the basics. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, and it's free. Please subscribe, share it with your gardening friends and family. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And uh, by the way, thank you for listening. I know many of you are planning a vacation, perhaps your first vacation in two or three years. You're anxious to get out of the house and do some traveling. Well, maybe you're going to come to California or you're already here and you want to maybe do a nice tour along coastal California, especially north of San Francisco. There are a lot of interesting horticultural wonders in that part of California. And over the next few months, we'll be talking about some of them. One of them is a Russian fort that also has a beautiful private garden. 
It's in a beautiful location, and it's called Fort Ross. A few years ago, we paid a visit to Fort Ross and got the lowdown on the Call Garden. Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman, on the road in Sonoma County at Fort Ross, a Russian fort. Uh, Yeah, really, the Russians used to own a piece of California. But what they didn't own was the garden I'm standing in. And what a beautiful garden it is. With me is Ranger Heidi Horvitz, who works for the state park system here at Fort Ross. And Heidi, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Tell us a little bit about Fort Ross. Well, Fort Ross was established in 1812 and run by the Russian American Company. Its goal for its 29 years was to provide food for Sitka, Alaska, for the Russian American Company. And while they were here, to have the Alaskan hunters hunt otter, which was a good source of of income for the company. Also, it was a trade route stop. So many things passed through here on their way to and from China. They also created things to sell and ship away, as in boats and materials that could be used in other areas. One amazing thing about Fort Ross is its location in one of the prettiest spots you're going to find on the Pacific Ocean. Well, where we're sitting is maybe 50 feet from the ocean itself on a beautiful bluff. And it's uh, like I say, we're in a garden. Now, the Russians didn't have this garden, did they? Who, who ran this garden? Well, even though the Russians came here to do agriculture and grow food, they soon found that the climate wasn't conducive to the wheat they needed to grow because of the summer fog. And in 1841, with problems in Russia and the company not making money down here, they left. They sold the fort to John Sutter, who was supposed to pay $30,000 for the materials because the Russians did not own the land. When they left, uh, they... John Sutter took the things back to Sacramento, the the livestock, the milled wood, the materials he could use. And his last foreman, his last job foreman, was a man named Bennett's. And his family, or he and his business associates, ended up buying the land and starting to ranch here. And that began the ranching era of Fort Ross. Another owner in between, but in 1873, George Washington Call bought this land. He had met a young woman. He was 36 and she was 15 while he was traveling in Chile. And he took this uh, orphan girl, married her, and they had nine children together. They lived at Fort Ross, though it was to be a weekend home or a business venture. His wife, Mercedes, loved the area so much, they ended up raising their nine children here in this house. After uh, George died in 1907, she was allowed to turn the front yard into her dream garden. And part of what you see here today is remnants of what she would have had here and our goal to make a garden pretty like she would have liked it. Yeah, we should point out that the Calls did not live in the fort itself, but in a house, and a pretty nice farmhouse, behind the fort with this beautiful cottage garden that overlooks the Pacific. I guess we're looking sort of south-southwest, and there's nothing to protect this garden from the elements. It has to get pretty nasty here in the wintertime. Well, the Calls, as, as people get to know the land, they build accordingly. The one thing that's very obvious about the front of the house is there's very few windows. They didn't take advantage of the beautiful view. They uh, built so that they could get out of the weather. But in the garden, he had built around the house or grew around the house 
lots of cypress trees and eucalyptus trees. The grandchildren, who are 86 now, uh, the, the daughters or the granddaughters that still help here at the park, tell about a ship coming and bringing young cypress trees. And when the call children were young, their job was to nurse these trees through the harsh summers and mild winters to get them to grow large enough so it could buffer some of the winds that come from the north and try and and just blow this area away. So in the summer here, in the spring especially, when the winds are blowing, you can stand in the visitor center up above us in the parking lot and be blown by 30-mile-an-hour winds, but come down here in the garden and enjoy the protection from these large cypress trees. That is amazing, yeah. That It is a, a very protected spot, and this front porch is gorgeous. In fact, why don't we stand up and take a look at the garden, because from the front porch, you can look down. It's about six steps up to the front porch, and you can look down and see this beautiful garden below us with the Pacific Ocean, like I say, maybe 50 feet away. What were some of the plants that they had in their garden that are still here today? She liked a few things more than others. She talked a lot about pelargoniums, fuchsias, and roses. Also in pictures are dahlias. She specialized in things from her native land in South America, and we now still today have remnants of datura um, that grow to tree size. And the fuchsias, unfortunately, met their demise in the early 80s with the fuchsia mite. So we have a few that are hardy and seem resistant to the mite, but we don't like to use any sprays here, so we've had to shy away from the fuchsias. We do have some pelargoniums and geraniums she would have grown, and we've snuck a few things in that are natives, like the hooker's primrose. But the echium and geraniums, roses, a few other things, especially the spring bulbs that do so well here along the coast. Now, what is this fuchsia-like uh, shrub in front of us with the uh, red tubular flowers? It's a fuchsia that, as you can see from the tips, is suffering from fuchsia mite, but it still blooms well enough. If we stand here, you'll probably see within a few minutes about 10 dives from the hummingbirds that like to feed off of it. I'm not sure of the variety of that one. It's a small red fuchsia. Oh, but for anybody who lives in the valley, that's a big fuchsia because it's a shrub that's it's probably three and a half feet tall, and it looks gorgeous. Now, one shrub I see here that I wouldn't think would do well here because I know it can't take uh, the harsh valley winds is the princess flower, the Taibuchina ervilliana. And yet uh, there it is in all its splendor. It's about uh, six and a half, seven feet tall with beautiful purple flowers. There's a funny story about that. We garden here with two of the granddaughters and both are in their mid to late 80s. And that bush right there actually is slated to be pulled out because it was not here when uh, Mercedes Call lived here. So the, we decided one day sitting on the porch that it was to go. So with my volunteers' uh, approval, I cut it down to about shoulder height with full intent of pulling the whole thing out. I got home that night and they all called me independently and said, we love that bush. Please <laughs> don't take the bush out. We know it's not historically accurate. So the bush got the worst pruning job anybody could imagine and it seems to be the most luscious and healthy that it's been. You know, it's amazing with the windbreaks that were created here, 
the microclimate that has developed in this area to allow these plants to really thrive. The, the one thing we do have a problem with is roses. We get the summer fog and we're trying to choose roses that she would have had and that also don't suffer with balling as the fog makes them do along the coast. It seems to be some of them do really well like Safrano that's right in front of us, but others just, just ball up and turn brown and just don't look good, like uh, Souvenir de la Malmaison, which is up along the fence. Uh, Wilkenblau, which is a single, beautiful, purple flowering rose we have in both corners. We actually get two blooms out of that, and it's a purple single rose. And here on the coast, I've seen it in Duncan's Mills. I've seen it in other areas that are old logging towns, which makes me think that perhaps the wives of the area pass them back and forth because uh, it's they're very common and very healthy. And for some reason, the deer don't seem to bother them as much as other roses. Ah, so the deer do make it down here. Yeah, we have uh, the one thing definitely not historic is the seven-foot deer fence that we've had to string around the garden. During the times of the calls, it, they would have definitely had dogs and guns to keep the deer out of the garden. But but we don't have either. Dogs aren't allowed right in this area of the park. And uh, the visitors frown on us shooting the deer. We tend not to do that as an eradication. We, we also, we trap gophers occasionally. But we try, we seem to not have as much problem as the, the Russians did. Because the gophers were one of the things that sent them away. Is there any record of when the calls were planting this garden, if they amended the soil, or is this the native soil that they used? The one thing about the soil here is it is it's like gold. It is in the garden here. They have amended it. She must have brought in the the manure from every animal in the area. They raised pigs here, and cattle, and sheep, and chickens, and rabbits. So. The soil here, you can dig down as deep as you can go, and you don't hit the the uh, nutrient-poor soil like you would 20 feet out of this garden. So here, particularly, it's very rich and it's wonderful to work with. So this is what Sunset means by a well-drained soil. Very well-drained. We don't have clay. If you want clay, just step out of here 20 feet, and you'll hit that really poor soil. Did the calls have a, a a vegetable garden as well? They grew everything. They had uh, apple trees. They had many, many acres of apple trees, uh, 1,200 trees at some point. They also had just the regular gardens that they would use. If you think about it, the store here was only accessible easily by ship. And they could go over land, but it was rarely done. Most of their produce was exported, uh, as in the apples, via ship that would come in in the cove here. They would load lumber and then top that off with things like butter that they had made here or apples or other um, exportable goods that they produced. So all the gardening was done here. It was done by the family. And you can, because of the mildness here, garden through the year with beets and other winter-loving vegetables. And I imagine you have some uh, flowers that do pretty well in the winter, too, for blooms. We, you can pretty much come here any month of the year and there will be things blooming. We have a real early show of Narcissus in December and January leading to daffodils and our favorite out here, Oxalis, sourgrass, the weed. We've decided that you can't beat it because it's so 
it's so rampant in this garden that we've decided to have the Oxalis Appreciation Day among the volunteers because <laughs> we can't get rid of it. It is a beautiful garden. And folks, if you're driving Highway 1 in Sonoma County, just a little north of Jenner, and you decide to stop at Fort Ross State Park, hey, take a walk around the back of the fort and take a walk out towards the ocean, and you're going to find a, a beautiful little farmhouse. And in front of that farmhouse, just the prettiest little cottage garden uh, you could find, the Call Garden, and it's part of of the Fort Ross State Park. And Heidi Horvitz, thanks for spending a few minutes with us and telling us all about this uh, little gem of a garden tucked away behind a Russian fort. Thank you. And the call house is now open. Volunteers run uh, the call house Saturdays and Sundays, the first Saturday and Sunday of the month from 1 to 4. And you're welcome to not only tour the garden that day, but venture inside the house and see how it's been open and refurnished and repainted and ready for a tour. The Call Garden, the Call House, and Fort Ross right here in Sonoma County. Come on and pay it a visit. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.